Continuing through the text today, if you're new to Sagemont, checking us out online, we typically go verse by verse through the scriptures, and we are going verse by verse today through the book of Peter. Um, I don't normally do this, but I want to begin the sermon today with a quote. It's uh, from Pastor Charles Spurgeon. He was the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in England from about 1850 to 1880. Uh, Spurgeon was probably the greatest preacher in history, with the exception of uh, Jesus and, and John Morgan, of course. And, um, but here's a, here's a quote. He says, hope, is, or hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only to be discovered in the night of adversity. Hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only to be discovered in the night of adversity. Here's his point. <clears throat> is when everything is going well in your life, that hope is not something that you really look for or even need. But when you find yourself in a night of adversity, that's when you start looking for hope. Because no matter what you're going through, no matter what you face, if you have hope, then you can get through it. I think we can make a pretty strong argument today that we are, as individuals, as a country, and as a church, going through a night of adversity. Would you agree with that? I mean, I mean, as you're well aware, I mean, let's talk about it for a minute. As you're well aware, we're going through a pandemic. And so... A lot of folks dealing with sickness and fear and death. It's like a daily part of our lives, it seems like. We're dealing with the political unrest that in my lifetime is unprecedented. It's, uh, we, there's, our country is hopelessly divided with no end to that division in sight. And on top of that, not unlike the people that Peter was writing to, I believe we are facing a looming persecution in this country. We, we have a country that is growing hostile to our beliefs. I want to share something with you that happened to me a couple of weeks ago that I think demonstrates that very thing. I can't go into a lot of detail on this because I was asked not to, um, but I, I guess it was probably two and a half weeks now or so, I was invited uh, myself and a few other pastors, many of whom you've heard their names before, were invited to be a part of a dialogue with the spiritual advisor of then-president-elect uh, Biden. He wanted to hear representatives from the evangelical community, community about what our concerns were. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. Um, <clears throat> the guy began the conversation. He started by saying, look, he said, I want you to know that I can't comment on any specific policy decisions of the then president-elect Biden, he's now president. He said, I can't do that. I can't comment on any specific policy decisions, which I thought was interesting because I thought that was the whole point of our conversation. And so the first question, <coughs> pastor from California asked something about refugees and I don't really remember the exact question, but interestingly, the advisor began to speak at length about what President Biden's specific policies were regarding to refugees, which I thought was interesting because he just said that he couldn't. Then the next question was from a pastor. I don't remember where this guy was from, but he asked a question about how the church could engage in a loving way with the homosexual community. Visor, again, 
started talking in length for a long time about President Biden's policies on the LBGTQ community, which again, I thought was interesting because he just said that he couldn't talk at length about policy decisions. And then the third question was from a buddy of mine. He asked a question that if he hadn't asked, I was about to. And this was the question, it was something to the effect of, he said, our Bible has been the book that Christians have based their lives on for 2,000 years. And that book specifically prohibits practicing homosexuality. If we, in evangelical churches, preach what we believe to be the truth on this subject from our Holy Scripture, will the new administration consider that hate speech and take away the church's tax-exempt status? That's a good question. Well, there's a long pause. I was watching the guy. He turns bright red. He says, I'm sorry, I can't speak on specific policy decisions. Next question. (laughs) True story. We're all kind of looking at each other over Zoom going, did that just happen? Um, That concerns me for a lot of reasons. Here's one. There have been studies done about the repercussions of churches losing their tax-exempt status in the United States. The study found that close to 40% of churches in the United States, if that happens, will have to close their doors. That's a lot of churches, many overnight. And by the way, this is for free. Just so you know where I stand on this, I don't care what the government says. Here at Sage Mount, we're going to preach this book, all right? I just want to let you know. Give you you a little heads up. (laughs) If I have to go to jail, I'm going to go to jail. It'll be a good story to tell my grandkids, amen? I hope I'm wrong, but I'm concerned that, the, that as followers of Jesus, we're going to face some serious challenges in the, in the years to come. And so here's the question. When the night of adversity comes, and it has, we're in the middle of it, when trials and persecution come, and I'm fairly confident they will, how are we going to respond? That's the question. Are we going to respond in sinful anger? be easy to do? Are we going to respond by growing bitter? Are we going to respond by being afraid in fear like Jesus asked us not to? Well, the question I want to answer today is this. What is our hope? This is the question. What is our hope, as Pastor Spurgeon said, that we can look to in this night of adversity that we find ourselves in? And in the text today, Peter points us to our hope, okay? So let's look at this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. That's where we were two weeks ago. 1 Peter 1, 20, Peter said, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Here's where we're going to camp out today. Verse 21, he says, Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its power and its clarity. I pray that we would be people that no matter what comes our way, that we would not respond in anger or bitterness and fear, but we would respond by looking at the hope that we have in you. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read this again. He says, through him... or." 
are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Again, it's important to remember who Peter's writing this letter to. Not unlike us, he's writing to a group of Christians that are walking through some pretty significant trials. And not unlike us, he's speaking to a group of Christians that are facing this looming persecution that got pretty intense. And in verse 21, what he's doing is he's reminding us that no matter what we face, because of the Lord, we always have hope. We always have hope. And then that same verse, what he does is he gives us three reasons why you and I should actively put our faith and our hope in God. Now, before I get into the three reasons Peter gives, I want to talk for a second about those two words, faith and hope. Because those two words get thrown out a lot in our culture. And, and we hear them so often, I think they lose their meaning. So just a little quick refresher about what faith and hope even mean. Whenever you see the word faith in scripture, it's a word that means to actively place your trust into something. And so when you came here today and you sat down in your chair, you quite literally had faith in that chair. You actively put your faith that that chair was going to hold you and then you sat down in it. That's faith. It means to actively trust something. <clears throat> now, the other word that we're looking at is the word for hope. Now, let me back up one second. I forgot one part. In, in faith, faith is when you actively put your trust in something right now. Faith is talking about the present. And so it's something you're doing currently. Hope is a different word. It's similar, but it's different in some ways. While faith means to actively place your trust into something right now, hope is a word that means to trust something in the future, to trust something in the future. Okay, now it's important to understand that the biblical word for hope, the way the word hope is used in the Bible is really different than the way most Americans use the word hope. When we use the word hope, we often use it in terms of wishful thinking. We're being optimistic about something. And so I might say something like, I hope that the Texans win the Super Bowl next year, right? I'm being optimistic, I'm, I'm wishful thinking, but the reality is, is that odds are they will probably not win the Super Bowl. We can't put our hope into them, but when we use that, it's optimistic thinking, right? But that's not how the word's used in the Bible. Biblical hope is not, um, is not based on optimism or wishful thinking, but biblical hope is based on a 100% absolute assurance of God's promises. And so don't turn there, but check this out. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11 the writer of Hebrews says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. And so biblical hope is the assurance of what you can't yet see, okay? So you can't put your hope in, in something like the Texans because we can have no assurance that they're going to follow through with that hope that we placed in them, but we can always place our hope in God because God always delivers on what he promises. And so when you hear the word hope, again, it's an assurance about what's going to occur in the future. Okay, and so that's why Peter is taking time to remind us in this letter. He's like, hey, you need to make sure that if you're going to put your hope in something, it needs to be in God. And you put your hope in God. Because the reality is, guys, is that even among believers, we have a really bad habit of placing our hope in everything but God. And everything 
but the one who we can have absolute assurance in. Okay, when turmoil and difficulty hit our country, what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to put our hope in a political party to fix it. When, we, when, it, when adversity, trials, that sort of stuff hits our marriage, we have a tendency to first sort of look at either at ourselves or look at our spouse and put our hope in them to fix the problem. When we face financial difficulties, trials, that sort of thing, we, we have a tendency to first put hope in ourselves to, to figure it out and to solve the problem and get through it. Well, here's the problem when we do that, church, is political parties and spouses and even our own strength are really poor objects of our hope. They're really poor objects of our hope. And that's an important thing to remind yourself of on a consistent basis. I want to share something that I've sort of learned in my old age. And that the harsh reality is this, and this is what I've learned. And if you haven't figured this out yet, it's probably because you're young and you will. But here's what I've learned is that every single solitary person in your life will eventually disappoint you. Every single solitary person in your entire life will eventually let you down and disappoint you. Married women, I want to take a poll real quick. How many of you that are married could honestly say that your husband has never once disappointed you? One lady in the back, she's married to Jesus, right? <clears throat> married guys, has your wife ever, never disappointed you? Of course not. I don't care what your relationship is, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your, your, your best friend, your boss, your hero in the faith, every single solitary human being in your life, if you give them enough time, they are going to eventually let you down. And here's what else I've learned in life. <clears throat> it's not just everybody, but everything will also disappoint you and let you down. What are some of the things that we have a tendency to look to to meet our needs, to satisfy. What are the things we look to to put our hope in? We look at things like money, fulfilling work, fun, perfect bodies, sex, whatever. But if money and fulfilling work and perfect bodies and fun and all that stuff were the secret to meeting the deepest needs of our soul, then I was thinking about it. If those things are really objects that we could actually put our hope into, money, all that stuff, then it seems like to me that Hollywood would it be the happiest, most fulfilled people on the planet? Because they've got all that stuff. But they're not. The divorce rate, suicide rate, rate of depression is higher in Hollywood than, than, than more of the general population. So it turns out that money, fulfilling work, perfect bodies, all that stuff are really poor objects for us to put our hope into. What about institutions? What are some of the institutions that we have a tendency to look to and place our hope into for today and our future? Even the church. It's a really bad problem with the church. The church is made up of people. So even the church will let you down. What about the government? What about political parties? If you have been placing your hope in a political party to solve all your problems, how's that working out for you? Right? Every person, everything, every institution in your life will eventually disappoint you. But I want, I want to watch, I want you to see rather the claim of the scripture in Romans 10, 11. Paul says, for the scripture says, whoever believes, that's a word that means trust. Whoever believes in him will not 
be disappointed. So that we actually have an object of our faith. We have an object of our trust. We have an object of our hope that will never let us down, that will never fail us, and that is the Lord, and it's him alone. And so let's go back to the text. And I want to show you the three reasons Peter gives for why we should always, first and foremost, be putting our faith and our trust and our hope in the Lord. We're going to look at those three things really quickly, and then we'll be done today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown for the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In verse 21, Peter says, who through him are believers in God. Okay? So the first reason Peter gives for why you should put your faith for today, your hope for tomorrow, and nothing in this world whatsoever but in God. Peter says, listen carefully, he says, because through him, through the Lord, because of the Lord, you are a believer in him. If you're a believer today, it's because he did something in your life, he's the reason, and because of that, you gotta put your hope in him. Now what Peter's doing here, I'm convinced he's, uh, he's referencing a conversation he had with Jesus back in, back in Matthew 16. And Jesus had come to his disciples and they were in this place called the Gates of Hades. The Gates of Hades, I've been there before in Israel. It's this really cool sort of amphitheater, natural amphitheater looking thing. There's this rock that goes all the way around it. And in the rock were these idols that were representatives of all the kings and all the kingdoms that had once held power in that area. It's amazing. It's all these different representations of all these kingdoms that used to be in charge in the world. Jesus brings them, sets them down right in front of this area, and he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? And they responded, well, they, people say that you're Elijah. They think you're Jeremiah. They think you're one of the prophets. And he says, you're right. Now I have a more important question. He looked at his disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. So he gave the correct answer. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. I want you to watch what Jesus says to him, Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Watch what he says. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so what Jesus just said to Peter is, Peter, the reason you believe in me is not because of your intellect. The reason you believe in me and all these other people don't is not because some man made of flesh and blood revealed it to you. Jesus said to Peter, the reason you believe in me that I'm the Christ and the son of the living God is because the father who's in heaven revealed it to you. Now look one more time at the text, 1 Peter 1, 21. Peter says, who through him are believers in God, okay? That's exactly what Paul was talking about. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And so Paul's saying, since God was the one that began this work in you, here's what you need to know. He is going to complete it in your life. Okay? Now here's why that matters to us. It means that this world 
Sagemont can take away your rights. This world can take away your home. This world might even take away your life. But what the promise of the scripture is, is this world can absolutely never take away your faith. And that's why Jesus, right after that, when he said, Peter, blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, right after that, the next thing he says is, Peter, on this rock, what rock? On the rock of the people who have the confession that he's the Christ and the Son of the living God. He says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what Jesus is saying there is this, is when all the kings and all the kingdoms of the world have come and gone, the church of Jesus Christ will still be standing. When all the kings and all the kingdoms that have come before you have done their best to try to end the church, the church will still be here. And so what Peter is saying here is this is why we have hope. Because Jesus told us a long time ago, and he's been right for 2,000 years. If the Lord tarries, he's going to be right another 2,000 years. But here's the point. Jesus told us we win. We win. That is our hope. God began this good work in us. God began this good work in the church. And God always finished what he starts. And that's our hope. So look at the second reason Peter gives us here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith or hope are in God. So interestingly, the second reason Peter gives for why we should put our faith and hope in God, he says God raised Jesus from the dead. So interesting theological question here. I always thought that Growing up, that Jesus was in the grave and he just kind of got up himself. But over and over again in the scripture, the scripture says that God, the Father, raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was dead. He was in his tomb. He was in the grave. God the Father breathed life in him and Jesus got up through the resurrection power of the Lord. And so we learn here that there is a power that's greater than death. And it's the power of the resurrection. And so in light of that, I want you to listen carefully about what the Apostle Paul says about this resurrection power. In Philippians 3, 9, Paul says, and be found in him, I want to be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that's what comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And look at verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul said, there's two things I want in this life. Two things I want in this life. Number one, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. The second thing Paul says is I want to know, which is a word that means to personally experience. Paul said, I want to personally experience the power of the resurrection. I find that a fascinating thing for a human being to say. Paul says, I want to personally experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think this, I think the only reason that Paul would say that he wanted to personally experience the power of the resurrection, I I think the only reason he would ever say that is if it were actually possible for you and I to experience the power of the resurrection. I think the reason that so many of us, if I can just be honest, I think the reason that so many of us 
are freaking out right now because of everything that's happening in our world. The reason we're responding in fear, the reason we're responding in anger and bitterness is because I believe we have forgotten that because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, we have inside of us the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Give you an example of why this matters. Think about Peter. I want you to think about how Peter responded to persecution and trials before the resurrection and after. Y'all remember, famous story, before the resurrection, Peter is asked about his association with Jesus. They, hey, aren't you the guy that hung out with Jesus? And you know the story, three times he denied. They even knew Jesus. Like, no, I don't know him. Third time, he gets so angry, he starts cussing. Blankety, blank, blank, blank. I don't know Jesus. But then, after that, Jesus is risen from the grave. And after the resurrection, after the resurrection, we see Peter again, and everything has changed. It's a story in Acts where Peter and John healed a guy, and the religious leaders did not like it. And I want you to watch what happened. I'm just going to read it to you. In Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And so Peter and John were speaking to the people. They just healed a guy. Captain of the, whoever these guys are, came and captain of the temple and Sadducees came upon them. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. Verse 5, it says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Did you heal this guy? And so I want you to think about it, that Peter here is in an almost identical situation as he was right before the cross when he denied Jesus. He was straightforward being asked about his association with Jesus Christ. But I want you to see how he responds here compared to the night before the cross. Do you think Peter's going to respond in fear? you think he's going to respond in anger? Or do you think he's going to be different? Let's watch. Acts chapter 4 verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Verse 10, he says, and and this is when he just goes off. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men with which we might be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Short time later, Acts 5.40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let him go. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. A little bit of a different response. 
a little bit of a different response. What happened? We have a guy asked about his association with Jesus. He responds in absolute terror, anger, bitterness. Here we see him acts about his association with Jesus. He starts preaching. They beat him. He celebrates because he got beaten and kept on preaching about Jesus. What's the difference? It's the resurrection. Had the power of the resurrection. Sagemont, guess what? So do you. We forget. (laughs) We forget. I know that because I forget that the same power that was flowing through Peter and John right there is inside of you right now. We forget that. And so the reason we need to put our faith for today and our hope for tomorrow in no one else but the Lord is that when adversity comes and when trials and tribulations come, you and I have a power that the world will never know. That's the power of the resurrection. Last one. Look one more time at the text. 1 Peter 1.21. Okay. Peter says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. A little simple phrase right there. We breeze over, but it has a lot of meaning. And gave him glory. So the last reason Peter gives is the why. Who put our faith and our hope in God is that God not only raised Jesus Christ from the grave, but he gave him glory. Now, what does that mean? I want to turn last set of scripture here, Ephesians 1.18. This is Paul talking about the glory given to Christ after the resurrection. Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and here it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. What Peter, or rather what Paul just said is that no matter what happens, no matter what we face, no matter how long the night of adversity, Sagemont, this is our hope. We can't ever forget it. Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive. And he's not only alive, but he's on his throne. He is on his throne. He reigns. That is our confidence. That is our hope. We can't flip out when this stuff goes crazy. Jesus is alive. Let's live like it. I want to end today by telling you a story. It's one of my favorite stories of my son, Sammy. Sammy's almost 16 now, which means I'm about to be really poor. Um, and when he was about three, we were in College Station at Central Baptist Church visiting some friends, and it was um, their Easter pageant that they were doing on Good Friday. Sammy was talking and doing what toddlers do, cute little guy, and um, just about this tall. And they got to the point where Jesus was crucified. And Sammy was just riveted to it. He was just watching. And then Jesus died. And they put him in the tomb. And little Sammy looks at me and he said, Daddy, my Jesus died? And I said, yeah, buddy, he, he died. 
And he got a little bit louder. He said, my Jesus died? And I said, yeah, buddy, he died. He did it again. My Jesus died? And I'm like, and everybody's starting to look around. I'm like, yeah. And I, so I pick him up and I'm walking him out. He's, my Jesus died? My Jesus died? And then he just, it, it, I'm like, yeah, buddy, he's going to be okay. He's coming back. But yes, he died. And then he, the little man lost it. Just, wow, he's screaming at the top of his lungs, my Jesus died, my Jesus died. I took him out, back of the sanctuary. I finally calmed him down. I'm like, you ready to go back in there? And so we walk back in, and right as we walk back in, the stone rolls away, and Jesus comes walking out. And Jesus looks at, or not Jesus, but Sammy looked at me, and he goes, my Jesus alive? <laughs> and I said, yeah, buddy, I told you. He's alive. He looks at me again. He goes, my Jesus alive? I was like, yes, he's alive. True story. Ask my wife. He starts screaming at the top of his lungs, my Jesus alive. My Jesus alive. Like that. Everybody in the whole sanctuary is not looking at Jesus who just rose from the grave. They're looking at Sammy. Everybody was crying for this little kid that it hit him fresh. My Jesus alive. And that is what Peter is doing today. He's reminding you, our Jesus is alive. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't grow bitter. Our Jesus is alive. And if our Jesus is alive, and he is, then who else in the world would we want to put our hope into?